Uh, why don't you pray with me one more time uh, as we arrive at this psalm yet again. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we can come together as your people. Thank you that we can come together as a church. And for any of our visitors today and anybody who is here who is not uh, in Christ, I pray that you would use your word uh, to speak to their heart, to convict their heart, to bring them to a place where they can say with us, that you are great, that how great you truly are. And uh, so we pray that you would work among us by your Spirit, Lord. Let it not be that anyone in this building here would walk out of this building unconverted and uh, unaffected by the things that they hear. And so we just ask for your Spirit to move mightily among us. We have great confidence in your Word and confidence in your sovereignty, to move in the hearts of people today and in our hearts. And we pray that you would, Lord, speak to our hearts through your word. I pray that your spirit would uh, minister to us your truth and help us, O oh God, to understand the truth, but importantly as well, to live the truth, to do the truth, uh, to obey the truth uh, for your glory. We thank you. We ask your help now as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, section of Psalm 2 is such an encouragement, really on a very basic level, because I was reminded that, you know, we come into church and we come uh, into the assembly of God's people, and many of us are coming from different situations and circumstances, many of them difficult, many of them hard, many of them discouraging. Uh, Some of you have had a hard week. Some of you have had an easy week. And those of you that have had an easy week, we will try not to covet your week. But some of us have had a hard week. We've had a difficult week. We've had a trying week. And it just reminds me that in this life, as Jesus said very, very simply, we will have tribulation. And isn't it remarkable that people spend their lives trying to, quote-unquote, take control of their life, to be in control uh, of their life? And, you know, I mean, I'm talking people will spend money. Uh, Millions are spent every year on medicine and doctors and counselors and psychiatrists and life coaches and uh, maybe even ministry to try to enhance your life, to try to give you a sense and a feel that you are in control of your life and of your circumstances. And, you know, if we're not careful, we can very easily lose perspective. And we can very easily begin to say to ourselves, Woe is me because of my circumstances. Woe is me because of this situation or that situation, because of my state, because of my physical infirmities, because of my difficult trials that I'm going through. Woe is me. But, you know, the most important thing that we need to consider, that we need to ask, is not woe is me or why is me woe. The most important thing that we need to ask is not woe is me, but who is with me? And Psalm 2, as I sat back reflecting on the things that I myself was preparing and meditating and, 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 and feasting on, I thought, these are fantastic claims. The things that we're reading here in this psalm are, 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 are just fantastic. They are they, they, they're, they're unthinkable, unspeakable. They're marvelous. They're marvelous in our eyes. They are almost too much to believe were it not written in God's Word. And yet at the same time, we understand that what the psalm is, 
doing for us on a practical level. It is encouraging us to remember who it is that is with us. Because I understand that Monday through Saturday, we can lose perspective of that just like that. Remember the disciples? They jumped in the boat, talk about Israel. They went, you know, after one of the episodes of the feeding of the 5,000 or one of those sections there in Scripture where they jumped in the boat and they were crossing over the Sea of Galilee and then the wind started blowing (laughs) and they didn't have, you know, a, a motorized engine. They were rowing through the Sea of Galilee and having crossed through the sea, depending which angle you take, it, it could be a really long journey. And the Sea of Galilee is known and notorious for these, you know, these southern winds that blow through the canyons. And all of a sudden, you feel like you're not in some little lake. You feel like you're out in the middle of, of the ocean on the, on the rough seas. I mean, it could be perilous out there. Well, there they, were, there they were rowing away, and the Gospels say that they were, they were riding through a contrary, a contrary wind. And that the, the wind was fierce and the wind was against them. And then they saw someone. Remember? They saw someone and they didn't know who they were looking at. They thought, is it a ghost? And it wasn't a ghost. It was Jesus And remarkably, just as the disciples were there struggling, probably all night in the night, going through this this terrible uh, tempest, if you would, they hear the most prolific words. They hear the words, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. See, that is such a simple parable of our lives. So easily... We can find ourselves amidst the waves, being tossed around in the boat and being put in a position where we we feel like we're going to capsize. Have you guys ever been close to capsizing on a boat? I have. Years ago as a young man, I went, I took a a fishing trip to Catalina Island in Southern California. On the way back, we hit what the captain described as the worst swells he has ever navigated. 20, 25-foot swells, and where we literally were given the, the instructions, when you see the wall of water coming, run to the edge of the boat and hold on. And once we get over the swell, then move over to the other side of the boat to stabilize the boat and do that again for the, for the next hour or so as we go through and we try to get back to the mainland. <clears throat> Needless to say, we were all refunded our money. But let me tell you, there, wasn't a, there was not a, a, a warm face in the bunch. I mean, everyone looked like they had seen a ghost, and it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> we were terrified that we were going to flip over out in the middle of nowhere. And yet at the same time, how comforting would it have been to hear the words, Take courage, it is I. The main uh, words in that phrase, one, two, three... It is I. See, don't you understand that who is with you in this trial? It's not your husband, not your children, not your pastor, it's not your wife, it's not your boss. It's not the comforting voice of a fellow believer that you need to hear, though that is comforting to some degree. What you really, really need to hear and what you have heard 
is the, is the words of the one who says, It is I. And depending on who the I is makes all the difference in the world. It is I. Who is he? Well, Psalm 2 is giving us such fantastic claims about who this I is. The I is the king of the universe. The king of the world. He is the one who is going to not only inherit all things, but he is the one who is going to destroy all of our adversaries. He is the one who is going to rule from the throne of heaven for all of eternity, taking you with him into eternity. Don't you see? It all depends on who the I is. And I sat there and I thought, thinking, this is such incredible claims, such fantastic claims. And yet we so easily forget who it is that is with us in the storms. This psalm reminds us of that. It is the king on the throne. It is the king of Zion. It is the king on God's holy mountain. And then this is the, this is the part that we're looking at today as we've looked at the hatred of Christ, meaning the, the fact that Christ is hated by this world. We looked at the confidence of Christ, the fact that, co- that Christ is confident because God is going to vindicate him. And then now we get here the surety of Christ, or what we could even call the covenant of Christ, as we understand why these promises are solid and you can build your life on it. It's not because you can get sentimental, but because there is a commitment on the part of Almighty God, of a sovereign God who has made a covenant commitment to His Son. And that is why you can rest assured that not only is He with you, but He is for you and His Promises do not fail. And I really want you to drive this home. Look, do away with all of the, do away with all of the rhetoric today. And let's just talk about very simply when you are in pain in your body, when you are sick, ill, when you are, when you, when you're despairing, when you are in the, in the trenches and the darkness of depression. This has to resonate with us. This must affect you in the middle of your marital problems. It must. So that's what we're looking at here. The practicality of the covenant with Christ. The covenant of Christ. Let me read the passage again for us. Beginning in verse 7. We looked at this briefly in Sunday school. We'll look at it again here. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So three things. Of course, you know me. I'm a very, very typical, nothing, no big deal. I'm a three-point preacher. And three points today. Number one, the covenant of Christ begins with God's eternal decree. God's eternal decree. 
Now, there's so much talk and so much really, frankly, confusion today concerning the sonship of Jesus Christ. I was just reading uh, the other night, I was reading John MacArthur's official statement that he gave back in the 90s when MacArthur changed his position from eternal, uh, from uh, believing that Jesus became or was adopted as the Son of God at some point in time. He changed his position to the more orthodox position known as eternal sonship. Well, I can drag you into that whole controversy, but basically it's verses like this that some folks are tempted to believe there is some point in time where Jesus became the Son of God. And so they debate, was it at his baptism? Was it, at his, was it in his incarnation? Was it at his resurrection? When did he, was it as his exaltation? When did Jesus become the Son of God? Answer, never. He never became the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God. And a lot of reasons why there's so much confusion on this. And I was scanning MacArthur's words because I care about what MacArthur says. I was scanning MacArthur's words to see if he would say something like what I've come to conclusions on this text. And he didn't. So I'm on shaky ground here. But the simple point of it is is that I think the confusion arises because they misunderstand the covenantal nature of this text. Very simple. They misunderstand the fact that at the background of this psalm, Psalm 2, stands the covenant with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And go there with me. I just read read it with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. This is a psalm that was read again during the coronation ceremony of kings. As they were installed, they would read this to the king in the presence of the people. And everybody knew that at that point in time, they were taking on the title of sonship. They were taking on the title of sonship. And you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the, 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 the covenant promise here that God makes. Beginning in verse 12. Because this, this, uh, this language was particularly pertinent for David's descendant. It says, when your days are complete, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me and when he commits iniquity I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Sons of men. So to be begotten of the Lord in Psalm 2 simply refers to the installation of the king like Solomon. It wasn't that that David, prior to this installation, was not God's son in a spiritual sense. He was. He was, I believe, already born again, technically speaking. And he was, in that sense, a child of God. But when he took upon the office of a king and he was installed, then it was known to everybody that David was assuming that position that reflected to the whole world that this was God's unique son, his son King, in other words, basically what it would mean. In Psalm 2, it really has nothing to do with the ontological origin of the Son of God, but with the covenantal mission of the Son, which is typified here as the one who will build his throne or his house forever. And that obviously... Uh, historically found fulfillment in Solomon. Solomon was the one after David who was commissioned to build the house of the Lord. But even Solomon was merely a shadow, merely a type of what was ultimately real about Christ. 
This is why we say that, you know, really the whole Bible is Christological. It's all about him. It's all speaking. It's all pointing to him. It's not speaking directly about him. In some way, it is anticipating him. It is foreshadowing him. All of these things. Psalm 2 is only part of the tapestry of the Son of God in Scripture, who is not only Son and King, but as Isaiah says, he is also servant and redeemer. Now it says here, in back, if you go back to Psalm 2, he says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. And I have pointed out that this word decree here is actually covenant language. And in Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10, the word decree and the word covenant is used interchangeably. And so what the psalmist is declaring is he's saying something like, I will tell, I will proclaim the covenant decree of the Lord. I will tell of his covenant commitment to his son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The today, by the way, if you still tripped up on the today, all we're saying is that the today is a reference to the historical moment when each historical king assumed the office. But that was ultimately typological of something greater. We know that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, because Hebrews kind of ties all sorts of these kinds of motifs together. And um, you get a really interesting um, thing that's going on there in Hebrews, because he quotes this passage. But look at what he says already, even before the passage. I guess we can begin in verse verse 1. Kind of feels like doing violence to the text, if you begin in verse 2, because verse 1 is just sitting there. Verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, in who, uh, it says, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now watch this, speaking about the Son, through whom he, made, he also made the world. Who made the world? The Son. So therefore, he was the Son prior to his incarnation. He was always the Son. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact presentation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. It says... For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So none of the angels can have the title of sonship except the Son of God himself. This was ultimately the hope of the Messiah Psalm 2 is presenting to us. Here, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, just to understand that Psalm 2 represented for the people of God a great messianic hope. A great messianic hope. Psalm 1, beginning of verse 30. Remember what's going on here. The angel is speaking to Mary. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, and in your womb you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. Of the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Same thing, go down to verse 68. 
I love uh, Luke chapter 1. It's such a massive uh, section of Scripture. It goes on and on. I mean, 70-something verses. Verse 68, Blessed be the God of Israel, for He has visited us, and He has accomplished redemption for His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. So no question that this passage was ultimately speaking messianic, messianically about Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his kingdom, his throne, his sonship. In the same way, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11, verse 10, it's amazing how all these scriptures go together to comprise a, a great tapestry of messianic theology but in Isaiah 11 verse 10 it says in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse that's the same thing as saying the son of David the branch who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious his resting place is glorious because it is the throne of God it is his resting place so it's almost as if we're being told here that the Son of God will enter into His eternal Sabbath rest on His throne. We can go on and on and on. But I also want you to see that it's not just about the covenant that was made. It's not just about the fact that the Messiah would be king, but that He also has an inheritance. So the covenant of Christ involves not only an eternal decree of God, all God's promises are based on that, but also it involves an eternal inheritance. And this is fascinating. Look back at Psalm 2, verse 8. He says, ask of, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth is your possession. Remarkable. Simply remarkable because now we're being told that for Christ to be a king was not an end of itself, he is a king precisely in order so that he would rule in the midst of his people. In the midst of his people. Theologians have pondered how the eternal Trinitarian council operated and agreed on the terms of redemption. If we, kinda, if we try to pry into the mystery a little bit here, we tread lightly, but we say that based on a passage like this, it seems as if we can say that the Father, having conceived of redemption, is setting forth a reward for His Son based upon, of course, His obedience. The Son, therefore, agrees to these terms. I think that's what's implied in the idea that He would ask the Father for the nations. Ask of Me, the Father says. The Father has set, set forth the promises of the covenant Namely, his commitment to exalt the Son and to unite the Son with his eternal inheritance. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. I think you see the same dynamic there. This promise to not only exalt the Son, but then to somehow unite him to a people that is now here promised to him. Promised to him. Also, the idea of asking me involves a level of voluntary commitment. The son voluntarily entered into this agreement where he asked and he received. Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
You will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his sin, so now we're seeing kind of a causal relationship here, as a result of the anguish of his soul, excuse me, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Which that's a very tricky, little tricky exegetical passage there, especially in the Hebrew text, because it could be rendered maybe by his knowledge, but by the knowledge of him or something like that. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Watch this. Verse 12 is what I'm arguing is that verse 12 is congruent with Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. I will allot him a portion with the great and will drive uh, and he will, excuse me, and he will divide the booty with the strong, but he will, uh, because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And he interceded for the transgressors. And notice that. Notice all of that going together. Here we see the servant of the Lord is also a priest. Because he intercedes for the transgressors. So we get all of this language in the Bible coming back to us about who Christ is. He is prophet. He is priest. And he is king of God's people. I will allot to him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. What is that talking about? I'll tell you what that's talking about. That's referring to resurrection glory. Resurrection. See, it is a kingdom that was covenanted to the Son. That is what's being promised to him. That's what's being typified in the entire Old Testament. That is what is being promised. A kingdom. Even if you go all the way back hundreds of years prior Thousands of years, okay, a thousand years prior to David, you have God telling Abraham, kings will come from you. All the way back then, you had the kingdom promised. This kingdom was granted to him based on his obedience. And we'll we'll get to this inheritance in a minute and what that means for us. But two things here, if you look at verse 8 back in Psalm 2, two things here are really being promised to the king. What we can call a new people and a new world. A new people and a new world because he says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations to you as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession." So he's, he's being promised a new people and a new world. A world in which he is sovereign. A world in which he will reign and rule with his people, in a sense. You can correlate this back with uh, Revelation chapter 5. Maybe I can just read it to you. This is a verse that I've cited often uh, in these contexts. But Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. That's Isaiah 53. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I love it. Because this is setting forth for us. This is helping us to understand what it is that Christ came to do. Yes, he came to die. Yes, he came to lay down his life. Yes, he came to go to the cross. But he came also to be exalted. 
to be resurrected and not just to be exalted, not just to be resurrected, but then to rule and to reign with a new people, a new humanity. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, I've already told you, I've exhausted this metaphor and this this example because I've got nothing better to give to you. What is God doing today on planet Earth? If you went up to the typical person on right now in, in this world and you told them, what is God doing right now? Uh, 3.30, Sunday afternoon, what is he doing? So is he just sort of floating around in an ethereal world up there, free from all the troubles of down here? No. Well, yes, he is, but <laughs> he is on his throne, and he is absolutely in a place of exaltation, exalted above the heavens, where nothing of corruption down here can affect him. But no, more than that, he is constructing a new people and a new world. A new humanity and a new world to dwell in with that humanity. Over and over. You see the same dynamic in the prophets. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. So presumably, here we have Messiah and Yahweh, or Son and Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Might serve him. That is truly remarkable language. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's what's being covenanted to the Son here. He has been given a kingdom. And the glorious thing, the beautiful thing about this is he means to share it with you. Now, when we take the Lord's Supper, that's one of the things that we're doing. We're not just taking a cracker into our hands and a little bit of grape juice. We are symbolizing something so deep and profound when we do this. Uh, Let me read to you, for example, we we are living out the desire of the Lord, a fellowship. Mark 14, beginning in verse 24, listen to what he says. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine, Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Isn't that glorious? The Lord's Supper is meant not just to commemorate the death of Christ, but it's also a promise. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a prophetic promise of God's desire, of Christ's desire to fellowship with us, to commune with us in His glorious kingdom beautiful, just startling. Finally, finally here, the covenant of Christ also results in eternal judgment. Based on an eternal decree, it includes an eternal inheritance and it results in an eternal judgment that is found there in verse 9 when he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. Remarkable imagery, isn't it? Uh, He's using the metaphor here of a potter. It's like a potter and his discarding of 
vessels of dishonor, if you would. In other words, common bowls and cups and things that are not useful to him. In a sense, it really speaks of the ease with which Christ will achieve his victory and the totality of the destruction that is going to happen there. We read this verse, but look at Psalm 89, verse 20. Another parallel idea, if you were not in Sunday school, another parallel idea to Psalm 2 is Psalm 89, where there again God promising to David his son who's ultimately just a symbol of a type of the great Davidic covenant with Christ, or excuse me, the great covenant with Christ, which is reflected in the Davidic covenant. I know it's hard to keep all of these things in their proper order, but such it is. That's the way that God revealed his purpose in this labyrinth of covenant administrations. That's the way that God desired to communicate to us his purpose in Christ. Uh, Look at verse 20. I found David, my servant. I hope you're looking at the Word of God and not just listening to the Word. It's really important for you to look at the Scripture. I think that it is a means of grace for your soul. I don't think it's just for us to check out and just hear it and just, oh yeah, something new can jump out at you. Some insight God can communicate to you by looking at the Word of God. Don't underestimate actually reading the Scripture, looking at the book. I'm really a stickler on that, you know? I'm constantly telling my wife, Trish, look at the book. Look at it. John Piper has a thing called look at the book, right? Amen! Look at the book, meditate on it. We're supposed to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And I'm just, I am, there's been times, I mean, sorry, tangent here a little bit, but there's been times where I'm sitting there, I'm listening to a sermon, I'll look down, I'll see something. It has nothing to do with what he's talking about, but something would just leap out at me from the pages. I have never seen that before. Don't underestimate the Word of God. I have found David, my servant, with whom I holy, uh, and with my holy, oh, I have anointed him. Because that's the language that we're in in Psalm two, with whom my hand I will esta- and, and, and with my hand I will establish my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. Oh, isn't your mind just going there? As you're reading this about the earthly David, isn't your mind just going there to Christ? He will not be struck. He will not be deceived. God will crush all his adversaries. He will strike those that hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. The, 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 the metaphor of the horn is just, is just uh, relating to the strength of the Lord. This is God promising the Son that after all his adversaries have done whatever they can do to him. At the end, that's not the end of the story. Jesus tells his enemies right before the crucifixion, this is your time. The power of this present darkness. And it's almost as if that's it. This is all you get. Just in this momentary moment, 
You get to abuse the Son of God, spit on the Son of God, pluck His beard and slap Him in the face. The power of this darkness is for you, for this moment only. But then after that, what does he tell the Sanhedrin? You will see the Son of God, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds with great power. Why? Because God promised that to him as the Davidic Messiah Son. You will see him totally vindicated one day. And this is the glorious reality, is that God in his unfathomable mercy and grace seeks to share this victory with us. He wants to share this victory with us. That's so profound. I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 29. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds to the end, To him I will give authority over the nations. Well, that just sounds a lot like what he promised David. But that's talking about the believer. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and with vessels of potter when they're broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. He who has an ear, let him hear who is with you today. If you have an ear, then hear who it is who says, it is I. I am with you. I am with you. The one who is with you is the one who was promised total victory and vindication over the present darkness and seeks to share it with you for all eternity. That's what I'm saying when we're looking at these texts. And I'm sorry if I'm a little exercised this afternoon. But when we're looking at these texts, we are looking at such fantastic claims where it's like I'm sitting there on my seat going, what do I do with this? I'm being promised the kingdom of God. I am being promised everlasting dominion with the Son of God to rule with Him. The book of Revelation says to sit on His throne with Him. That's what Christianity is all about. Same pattern as Christ. Live a life, you suffer, you die, you're resurrected, and you are glorified. If you're at step two, suffering and going through this present life, and you expect the glorification part, yeah, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. You're only on step two. You can't have an over-realized eschatology. That's the problems with the Corinthians. They had an over-realized eschatology. So much so that Paul said, oh, it looks like you've already begun to reign without us. Because somehow they put together... They were like extreme post-millennialists or something. They had somehow put together all the theology of the Old Testament and they came to the conclusion, the kingdom is here, we're reigning, that's it, it's over. No. The kingdom is here in an inaugurated way. It's here in principle. It's here in the sense that it has already begun and intruded spiritually in our heart. Christ is ruling and reigning, absolutely. And he has dominion and we don't see it yet, but he does. But there is more to come. That's the glorious thing about the kingdom of God. It is already, but not yet. As much as you can make of the present realities of the kingdom of God, 
Don't forget that the kingdom is still to come. And we should yearn for it and long for it and ask God to help us to live for the kingdom of God in light of the kingdom of God. Who cares what we got to go through in this life? It's only momentary light affliction that will fade away, incomparable to the weight of glory that will be revealed in us. That's the way that it works. And therefore, as I mentioned earlier, and I closed my, my notes here in a fit of zeal, sorry. But I always try to connect all of these passages to Christ. So how does Psalm 2, the simple Christological doctrine that is coming back to us as Psalm 2 is this, is that Jesus is uniquely and truly the Son of God. He is what John calls the monogenes theos. He is the unique Son of God. Monogenes theos husios, or something like that. Only begotten Son, which really... The word begotten stresses the concept of uniqueness. In other words, unlike all the other sons in the Bible, we talked about this in Sunday school, Adam was a son of God, Israel was a corporate son of God, David was a son of God, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate. He is the son of God par excellence. He doesn't point to any other son. All those other sons pointed to another son. Jesus does not point to another son. Jesus is the son that they were all pointing to. And now that the son has come, then our hope is bound up in him. Like Adam, he's our representative. Like Israel, he is our chosen race. We belong to him. He is our leader and he is our exodus leader. Like David, he ushers in the kingdom. Everything. Everything is wrapped up in Him. And so, brothers and sisters, in the midst of your weekly trials, don't forget that when you go through the storm, and you, because you know the Bible well enough, you, you might even remind yourself of that story. Jesus walking on the waves, calming the storm in another passage, right? He calms the storm. He walks on the winds of the, uh, he walks on the wave. He overpowers the wind. He calms the sea and he tells you, take courage. It is I. Don't forget to fill in the eye. He is the king of glory that is with you. And he is not only with you, he is for you. Father, I, I feel I've done all that I can I feel that we have seen the preeminence of your son, Jesus. I feel that we've seen his office as king. We know that he is the son of God. We know that he is eternally so. We know that he was given a kingdom by covenant. We know that his promises are sure. We know that his kingdom will come. And Lord, we know that you have given your Son an eternal inheritance that involves a world and a people, a new humanity. And that's us, the church. And so remind us when all we can see is our destitute state. Remind us 
of our great privilege in Christ. Remind us that our identity is not what our trials and our human weaknesses and our human limitations say that they are. That our identity is that we are those who are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.